0: Hello and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. This podcast will cover the case of the West Memphis Three, as was requested by many, many of you. Now, there's just not enough time for me to really dig deep and follow every dark and twisted rabbit hole to find every piece of information because this case is just insane. I'm quite sure I missed a thing here or there, so bear with me and be kind. Here we go. Let's begin with the term Satanic Panic. Most of you have probably already heard about this. I know I'm quite familiar with it because during my very early years, this was all that the many talk shows covered. I grew up and continue to live right on that blurred line of the middle and what is actually considered part of the South. The saying goes, there are three churches to every business. When I was a kid, I heard the rumblings of satanic panic and It's a phenomenon characterized by widespread fear about the presence of satanic ritual abuse in your community, your state, and sometimes the whole world, depending on who you talk to. This began in the 70s, but the fear got completely out of control during the 80s and 90s. People believed that there was this vast underground network of Satanists that were in control of secular society. And side note, the vast majority of people that actually practice Satanism are not evil, violent, dangerous people. Most of them aren't. Get educated. But regardless, the panic seems to have lost a lot of its steam in the 2000s. So I can actually give you an example of this story from my own life. I came from a very small town with many, many churches. Now, I like rock and metal music. I can also appreciate most all other genres, save country, but metal was and continues to be my jam. I wore black concert t-shirts to school, listened to my music, and I was completely the outcast. I heard the whispers about me being evil or worshipping the devil because I like my music to be about more than say getting drunk and whining about how my girl stole my trailer and my dog. I happen to like wearing black because it goes with everything. It's slimming and perhaps I liked that me dressing like that kept people away because I am 100% an introvert. I have severe depression and anxiety thanks to my own version of Clarnell Kemper who lived her life in such a manner that it made it impossible for me to fit in with my peers as it was. And though metalheads and people who wear black and whatever are more accepted these days, there is still a stigma. Now I personally believe that everyone has the right to believe in and worship whatever makes them happy. As long as it isn't hurting anyone or themselves but for me in high school I bought some tarot cards to see what all the fuss was about I played Dungeons and Dragons and I thought it was fun never once in all of my years of wearing black and listening to metal and thinking plants and crystals were pretty have I ever wanted to say sacrifice children to Satan that is of course ludicrous Because I, personally, just me, do not believe he exists. Why would anyone want to harm an innocent child in the first place, period? It is immaterial what you listen to, or what you wear, or if your teenage angst is misunderstood. You will not end the life of another unless something else is already there, okay? I know a lot of people gossiped about me, and that's fine, but I told you all of that to say this. I'm coming at this subject as unbiased as I can be, but I was most certainly alive during this whole situation. I remember it being on the news and everywhere. I'm very, very familiar with this case, so I will do my best to be as unbiased as possible. We will begin with the crime itself. Three eight-year-old second-grade boys, Steve, Michael, and Chris, were walking home from school on May 3, 1993. Three neighbors stated they had seen the three boys playing together at 6.30 p.m. as well as hearing Chris's stepfather, John Mark Byers, calling the boys home. By 7 p.m., Chris's stepfather called the police and reported the boys as missing. Steve was well-liked by his classmates, blonde hair, blue eyes, mama's boy, very friendly and outgoing. He lived with his mother, Pam Hobbs, and stepfather, Terry Hobbs, and little sister, Amanda, who was four at the time. On the afternoon of May 5th, Pam and Amanda walked him home from school around 2.45, They got home, he worked on homework, dinner was being prepared. Michael showed up after school and asked if Steve wanted to go ride bikes. Pam said yes, but be home by 4.30 at the latest because, you know, I have to go to work. He agreed and the boys left happily. Michael was the son of Dana and Todd Moore and he had a sister Dawn who was 10. Michael was super proud of being a Cub Scout. He loved to pretend to be a police officer while wearing his Cub Scout shirt. As soon as he got home from school, he rushed over to Steve's house to go play and ride bikes. Chris lived with his mother, Melissa, and stepfather, John Mark Byers. He was new friends with Steve and Michael. He had ADHD and was prescribed Ritalin, but it didn't really seem to help his symptoms. He rushed over to Steve's house, but the other boys had already left. He asked if he could stay for a bit and watch some TV to see if they would come back before he goes to look for them, and Steve's mom Pam said, yes, of course, go ahead, sit down, watch some cartoons these three boys were best buds so him sticking around and watching tv would have been normal but chris left around 4 p.m to find the other two chris was seen riding his skateboard laying on it face down rolling down the street which is pretty dangerous and his stepdad john mark byers saw him and was angry he grabbed him he spanked him and he ordered him to go home and go do some chores before he could go back and play with his friends. John Mark Byers had to go take an older son to his court appearance, so after disciplining Chris, he left with his older boy for that. Chris's mother, Melissa, observed her son outside. He was in and out of the house, but she was on the phone, barely paying attention. A witness and neighbor stated she saw the boys playing in her yard a bit before 6 p.m. as she was leaving to go have dinner with her family, and that dinner started at 6. She shooed them out of her yard and left, stating that she believed they were headed towards some nearby woods. Dana, Michael's mother, got home 10 minutes after he got home from school and saw he and Steve riding bikes on the street. At 6 p.m. she saw them riding north and she wanted Michael to come home because dinner was nearly done. She sent his 10-year-old sister Dawn to go get him and tell him to come home. She got on her bike, rode to find the boys, but she couldn't find them. She said she did see two black males and one white male and the white male was wearing black and yellow clothes. As she rode past, she said one of them asked her if she wanted a shot. She didn't know what that was, so she got scared and she quickly rode off and went back home. Dawn then said she saw the three young men at a house 45 minutes later and two were entering that house. Another neighbor, Kim Williams, stated she saw Steve and Michael walk into the Robin Hood Hills, which is a heavily forested area, between 5.30 and 6, and she later saw the three teenagers leaving the woods. Around 6 to 6.30, the boys were seen playing in the neighborhood by another neighbor as she was leaving to go to church. She specifically told them to go home, and they rode away laughing, as boys do. She then witnessed Steve's stepfather, Terry Hobbs, yelling at them to come back, and all three boys turned around and rode toward Terry Hobbs. All three boys were observed at 6.30 by another neighbor playing by a drainage ditch, and yet another witness saw them At 7 p.m. riding bikes as he got out of night class and he said that they were all riding toward Robin Hood Hills so we've seen the boys as late as 7 p.m. riding toward the woods okay now the woods the parents didn't really like their kids playing there because on the other side of those woods was a truck wash for semis and a major highway just beyond that But the local youth of all ages liked playing in or hanging out in the woods. There was a drainage ditch that was in the middle of the woods, and the children called that the Devil's Den, and they didn't really go much past that. And like I said, beyond that was the truck wash and the highway and so on. So John Mark Byers, Chris's stepfather, reported him missing just after 8.00. Police officer Regina Meek arrived at 8.10. John stated that the last time he saw the boys was 5.40 p.m. His son was riding a skateboard. He admitted spanking him and ordering him to go home and do chores. Melissa, the mother, corroborated John Mark Byers' story. So, Byers got back home. He wanted to go out to dinner, so they had to go out looking for Chris so that they could, you know, go to dinner. They drove around looking for him around 6 p.m. but couldn't find him. They went across the street to Michael's house and asked, hey, you know, have you seen the kids? And she said, well, I can't find Michael either. But Terry Hobbs, again, Steve's stepfather, had been by earlier looking for Steve. So now at this point, other parents come out and they all begin looking for the kids. They do find Chris's skateboard, but not Chris. So Officer Regina is, you know, taking statements from John Mark Byers, his wife, Melissa, but not from the other parents because she said she was keeping an eye out for all of them. So at this point, the one statement would be enough. At 8.29 p.m., Regina left and drove all around looking for the boys. At 8:42, she gets a call to go to the Bojangles fast food restaurant because there has been an issue. So Bojangles restaurant reports that a bleeding black man entered their establishment at about 8:10 p.m., which was located very near where the three young boys would soon be found. The man who was wet and had muddy legs and feet, was wearing a white cap, black pants, and a blue shirt. He had blood on his face, blood on his arm, and he seemed, quote, mentally disoriented, and he went into the women's restroom. He was also supposedly sporting some kind of cast on one of his arms. The restaurant employees called the police at 8.42 p.m. to report the man, but He left just a few minutes before Officer Regina arrived. The employees entered the bathroom, and they found blood smeared on a wall. Now, of course, Regina is writing all of this down, but she never has to leave her squad car. Know why? Because she took the entire statement through the drive-thru window. She not once went inside to investigate that bathroom, and she left the restaurant around 9 o'clock. She also didn't take off driving to see if she could locate this man as he had just left on foot right before she got there. The evidence later collected from the Bojangles restaurant was also never sent to a crime lab to be analyzed and then later it was reported that the samples were lost. No further interviews or evidence was ever discovered or brought forth regarding this incident. Officer Regina instead took a call for a domestic dispute. At 9.24 p.m., Officer Regina then takes the official statement from Dana Moore, who reported her son, Michael, was missing. Todd Moore was a truck driver and was out working, and he didn't get home till about 5 a.m. Terry Hobbs called the police from the Catfish restaurant, Again, Regina was the one to take the statement about Terry's missing stepson, Steve. Pam, Steve's mother, was dropped off at the Catfish restaurant where she worked by her husband, Terry, at 5 p.m. when her shift started. Terry himself worked for this ice cream company and traveled around to take orders or make repairs to machines. He arrived home a bit before 4 p.m., asking where Steve was, and Pam said he was out playing. When he didn't get home, the parents drove around looking, and Terry said, Well, hon, let me go ahead and take you to work. You don't want to be late, and I'll go on and keep looking. So, Terry's friend, a man named David Jacoby, who also worked for the ice cream company, was Terry's only alibi terry said after dropping pam off he went to david's and asked where his stepson was david said i haven't seen him terry had amanda who was steve's sister with him and david's wife agreed to watch amanda so that david could help terry continue to look for steve and that at no time was he ever alone terry said his alibi was that he was either with amanda his stepdaughter or with david his friend Now, David's statement was not the same. His was that he didn't remember exactly what happened, but that he got home, you know, around 4.30pm from work and also believed Terry and little Amanda showed up to his house between 5 and 6. Amanda began playing with toys while David and Terry began playing guitars together, you know, having a little jam session, in no way looking for a missing boy. They were working on a song, and they did this for about an hour. Then David said he realized Amanda was out there, but not Steve, and asked, you know, where's Steve? And that's when Terry said, oh, you know, he's missing. David told Terry that he had earlier seen all three boys riding together on bikes and, of course, the skateboard. Terry told him that, you know, perhaps he should go home and check and see if Steve was home yet. So he left little Amanda there, and then he came back and said Steve was still not at home and could they go check around the neighborhood together, leaving Amanda with David's wife. Terry then wanted to drop David off at his house, go to his own house to change into different clothes to go looking in the woods. Terry told David, You know, I'll be right back. So David went back in his house, he changed, he got some gear, flashlights and what have you and waited. Terry never returned. So David went and searched the woods himself and did not see Terry out there. So, you know, Pam waits for Terry to pick her up. He comes in and he doesn't say anything to her. He walks to the payphone. She walked out and waited in the truck to find only Amanda. So she's a little concerned Terry came out and said, Well, I've been looking for Steve all night. Police officer Regina comes into the restaurant and gets a statement from Pam. But to this point, most of the searching was being conducted by the families and friends and less from the police. Maybe one, maybe two officers. So now we're getting to the point where it's after dark. People searching focused in the woods and didn't find anything at first. And again, I want to say, there were only one, maybe two police officers helping in the search. There wasn't an APB. There was nothing like that. Witnesses said they could hear several people shouting the boys' names. The number of people trying to help did increase. And finally, around midnight, the search, because it was dark and hot and humid, muggy, mosquitoes, all the things, the search was paused. 5 30 a.m. the fathers and one grandfather get together and start searching again. By now the police are heavily involved but no one is finding anything and the searchers are kind of beginning to leave. Midday the police then have to search the water which is muddy and dirty. An officer crawls on his hands and knees and feels along the creek bed feeling for you know anything and he pulls out the body of Michael Moore. He then finds the other two and puts all on the ground beside the creek. All three boys were naked with their wrists tied to their ankles with their own shoelaces. Their clothes were in the creek and nearly all turned inside out. Their underwear was never recovered all three had been beaten severely with injuries and lacerations to their heads. Steve had several bite marks on him as well, though sources say that that could have been from animals post, you know. In addition to all of that, Chris appeared to have his genitals mutilated. One of the other boys had less severe mutilation, but in the same area. However, none of them had actually been sexually assaulted. The bodies were anchored to the bottom of the creek. The bicycles were found and put in the back of an animal control truck which could have compromised any evidence, though it was announced that there was no evidence found on the bikes regardless. Police then went back to the Bojangles restaurant to take a look, though the employees had already cleaned everything up, but they were able to find some blood to scrape and take as evidence, and an employee actually happened to tell the police, who had just come from the creek, that the man had been muddy and wet just like them. That's important to note. Also during this, a woman had a standing appointment to give a statement to the police about an unrelated matter and she brought her eight-year-old son with her. This boy, Aaron, stated that he played with the boys fairly often and that they would swim in that creek and that that day he had seen Michael speaking with a tall, skinny black man with yellowed teeth after school. He heard the man tell Michael that his mother had sent him to pick Michael up. FYI, the man drove a maroon car and take him home from school, to which Michael's mother afterwards completely denied. Regardless, Michael declined and he walked home as he always did. The authorities interviewed Aaron several times after and his story changed quite a bit each time. I mean, it really changed. It evolved into a whole thing. Now, granted, he was eight years old, but his story went into him seeing, you know, five young men or teenagers wearing satanic-looking clothing and jewelry and drinking the boys' blood and on and on. It is glaringly obvious that he was led into saying those things. This is when Aaron names three specific suspects. His mother also states that she saw Damien and one of the other two teenage boys practicing satanic witchcraft, which was of course not true, but she admitted that long after the trial. She later said that the police told her to say that, or else they'd take her son away. This is when the satanic panic began in western Arkansas. This particular area of the country is full of not very wealthy people, they're average people and they're very devoutly religious people, especially during that time. I would know. I'm not technically from West Memphis, but it's nothing more than a long afternoon drive away. I am very aware of that area so with this demographic of people back during that time these people were a lot less tolerant of anything outside of what you see say in the movie steel magnolias you know baptisms and brunches Hardworking people who listened to country music or gospel music and that was their world and that's fine but they didn't much want nor tolerate anything outside of that Now, as this case was being put together, the authorities intentionally assigned a case number that ended in 666. So then there's this youth probation officer named Jerry, and remember Jerry, yes, remember Jerry. He goes to the authorities with some names he believes are suspects. 17-year-old Jesse Miskelly, 16-year-old Jason Baldwin, and 18-year-old Damien Eccles. So let's touch on their backstories. Jason Baldwin's mother, from what I understood, had schizophrenia, was rumored to have abused drugs and worked overnights, leaving Jason to care for his younger siblings. But he genuinely loved them. He was good enough with kids that the neighbors would pay him to babysit their kids but he was very strictly assigned the label of a degenerate by others simply because he liked to wear black and he hung out with Damien. So Jesse Ms. Kelly lived with his father. His IQ was tested at below 80. I think the average number is like 72, meaning he had a borderline mental disability. He functioned on a smaller child's mental maturity, say five years old. He had a hard time in school and he dropped out, deciding to work with his dad and work on cars. He did get into some minor trouble as bored teenagers often do, but he was also very good with kids and was kind hearted. He would even go out of his way to help his neighbors with their own chores. Now Damien Eccles is a little bit of a different story. You kind of need to hear the details about his past to get the idea, so this part will be a bit longer. Damien's family moved around a lot, as in several different states, within the course of two years. Needless to say, they also lived in abject poverty. Places that should have been condemned, often with no electricity or running water level of poverty. In fact, Damien was sent to live with his grandmother when his little sister was born because, you know, his mother didn't think she could handle taking care of two kids. Damien's parents fought because his father was humiliated due to feeling like he was failing his family and the two divorced. His mother later married a solid Catholic man that was a mite older than her and he was heavily into his church. Damien hated him completely because he was abusive towards their pet dog as well as himself. He was also very verbally abusive, telling Damien that he was dumb and worthless. He also demanded Damien call him dad, but there was one bright spot. His stepfather did give him room to be himself, to listen to the music he wanted to and dress the way that he wanted to, so there's that. But his stepfather wound up moving the family into a church somehow, though I'm not really sure how that would work, but regardless, Damien began to feel like everything about people and what they believed in was hypocritical. The church they became involved with did the, quote, laying of hands, which is just a process where someone, usually a priest or pastor, can put their hands on you and you will be healed of whatever ailment you suffer from. And Damien just felt this was crazy. As he became a teenager, he started dating a girl who was into Wicca, and he began to study. You know, he was curious about it. He was a highly intelligent young man, no matter what his circumstances were, and he was always reading. The Wiccan religion really spoke to him, and he began to dabble in it, which would have, especially at that time... But even now in that area, been looked at as flat-out evil. But inevitably, his girlfriend broke up with him, and he was devastated. And then his stepfather lost his job, and he was constantly laying around and yelling at everyone. It was a really bad situation. They were completely broke again. Damien then found out that his ex-girlfriend had cheated on him, so... You know, he found the boy and they got into a fight, teenage boys do that. Then he and the girl got back together and they plotted to run away together. They of course got caught and got taken back into town. Again, not completely unheard of among teenagers. That's when Damien was assigned this probation officer, Jerry, the very one that later brought him and the two other boys to the attention of the police for the murder of those three little boys. Jerry had read Damien's girlfriend's journal that spoke about them studying different religions and dabbling in Wicca and so on and flat out accused Damien of being a Satanist. Remember satanic panic. So once Damien was released it also came out that his stepfather had been molesting his younger sister. Then, Damien's bio dad came back into the picture pretty much out of nowhere, and he did not even recognize his own son, just as Jerry and the authorities told Damien's parents that he would either go to jail in due time, which is completely untrue for running off maybe a few miles from home, or he could be admitted into a mental hospital. So, the parents put him in a mental hospital. Then, Damien's mother allowed Jerry to look around in Damien's room where he found rock posters and he found his journals. He had a skull collection that was innocent in and of itself and convinced himself that this theory that Damon was purely evil was true. Damien was put on antidepressants and the side effects were not good. He's told by his family that they are all moving to Oregon He gets released. They move to Oregon. He's helping his bio father with his work, but he really wanted to go back and be with his girl. They'd made a pact to be together forever. You know how it goes. He tried to call her and she, once they spoke, got off the phone and she told her parents that he had called and the parents called Jerry. So I'm completely confused as to why this guy had to be in the middle of any of this, though it is widely believed that he just became obsessed with the occult and anyone that might even seem like they dabbled. But regardless, this guy was called. He then called the area of Oregon that Damien was living in at the time and demanded that police department arrest him. The local authorities took a look into Damien, of course, talked to him, and they told Jerry that Damien was fine, there was nothing wrong, he wasn't doing anything wrong. You see, our boy Jerry was going around Damien's hometown, he was showing people his picture and saying that he was a Satanist and he was performing human and animal sacrifices. Then one night, his little sister thought that he was acting strange, that perhaps he was depressed again, and she went and told their mother. Now, Damien denies this, that everything was fine, but he was, of course, taken to a mental hospital yet again. Once released, he decided he wanted to go back to West Memphis, where some family and his friends were. He did get back and immediately Officer Jerry had him arrested for being a minor and not residing with his parents. He was taken into the police station where he was chained to a chair and questioned about satanic activities. Because the satanic panic had completely taken over this area and yet again Damien told him he had no clue what he was talking about or why Jerry had become nearly obsessed with trying to pin things on Damien. But it is also important to note that while he was being detained he did taste the blood of another inmate i can make no excuses for that everyone has their kink but that of course did not make him look good but doctors ultimately stated that he was no danger he was a fairly typical teenager who had depressed moods but was highly intelligent and they released him into the custody of his former stepfather, the one who had been molesting his little sister. Yeah. So Damien was of course not having this, so he goes and he applies for disability, which he receives, and that gives him an allowance, and then he went on to get his GED because his family never gave a shit about his education. Then Damien began seeing a girl named Dominie, and she eventually got pregnant. Jerry then started spreading rumors that they were having a baby just to sacrifice it to the devil. This man is just so disgusting. So on May 8th, a few days after the murder, two detectives come to Damien's house and question him, but not as a suspect at first. They made him feel like they were coming to him for advice, so he wanted to help, and he said things like, you know, well, whoever did this must have wanted to, and this isn't normal, and so on. They then go on to question Damien and his friend Jason Baldwin. On May 10th, they interviewed Damien at the West Memphis Police Station. In June, mentally disabled Jesse Kelly was interviewed for hours and hours on end, and he eventually cracks and gives a confession that is quite clearly not true. The police were holding his hand and leading him to the answers that they wanted him to give even though he said they had murdered the three boys at noon. There's so many things wrong with the interview. He stated that they cut the little boys on their bottom and then the interviewers literally correct him. Here, you know what, you can listen for yourself.
1: Police Department currently in the West Memphis Police Department conducting investigation for the offense of triple homicides, case file number 93050666. Currently in the office with Jesse Lloyd and Kelly Jr., first date 1775. Okay, Jesse, let's go straight to that date. That morning. At Nine o'clock in the morning? Yes it is. Okay. I went with them. The little patch of wood. Little patch of wood. Behind Blue Beacon? Behind it. Right
2: there behind it. Okay. What
1: occurred while you were there? Which one of those three boys is it you say Damien hit? The third picture, which will be My boy. this boy right here. Yeah. Alright, that's uh the buyer's boy. Chris That's who you're pointing at? Mm-hmm. So, you saw Damien strike Chris Byers in the head. Right. What did he hit him with?
2: He hit him with his fist and bruised him all up real bad. Then, the uh, Jason turned around and hit Steve Branch.
1: Okay.
2: They start doing the same thing. Then the other one took off. Michael uh, Moore took off running. So I chased him and grabbed him and held him to...
1: They got there and then I left. Now, when this, when he hits the first boy, where are they at when he when he hits him? Are you in the woods? you on the side of the big bow? you out in the field where you I are? In the woods. In the woods. All right. Okay. When he hits the first boy, and then Jason hits another boy, and one takes off running, where does he run to? That one,
2: he runs out, going out to... Out the park and I chased them and grabbed them and brought them back towards the house.
1: Towards the house. Where the pipe is that goes across the water? Yeah.
2: Okay. He ran out there and I, I caught him and brought him back and
1: then I took off. Okay. Well, you came back a little bit later and all three boys are tied. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And then I took off and went home. All right. Have they got their clothes on when you saw them tied? Yeah, they had them off. They had already gotten them off. When he first hit the boy, when Damien first hit the first boy, did they have their clothes on then? Mm-hmm. All right. When did they take their clothes off?
2: Right, right after they beat up all three
1: of them and beat them up real bad. Beat them up real bad? And then they took their clothes off? mm
2: mm-hmm.
1: then, then they tied them?
2: Then they tied them up. Tied their hands up, and they start screwing them and stuff, cutting them mm-hmm. and stuff. And I saw it, and I turned around and looked. And then I took off running. I went home. And yeah. they called me, asked me, how come I didn't stay? I told them I just couldn't. Just couldn't
1: stay for that. I couldn't stay see what they were doing to me. OK. Now, when it's going on, when it's taking place, <clears throat> You under, you saw somebody with a knife? Who had a knife? Jason. Jason had a knife. What did he cut with a knife? What did you see him cut or who did you see him cut? I saw
2: him cut, one of the little
1: boys. Alright, where did he cut him at? He was cutting him in the face. Cutting him in the face, alright. Another boy was cut, I understand. Where was he cut at? At his bottom. On his bottom? Was he face down and he was cutting on him or uh. you're talking about bottom do you mean right here Mm -hmm. in his growing area okay so you know what his penis is that's where he was cut at that's where he was cut which boy was that That, that, that. you're talking about the buyer's boy again okay are you sure that he was the one that was cut
2: that's when i think i'm cutting on. okay do you know what
1: a penis is Uh, is that where he was cutting? That's where I seen him
2: going down at. And he was on his back. I seen him going down like a real close to and stuff. And I saw some blood and that's when I took off.
1: Was so, uh were y'all close to the creek at that point? Yes. Where where was the little boy actually at? He was close. Did you hear any more hollering or anything? No. Alright. You mm-hmm. we went home. And about what time was it that all this was taking place? Did they called me about. I'm not saying when they called you. I'm saying what time was it that you were actually there in the park? I was there about 12. About noon? Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: So let's break down the evidence against Damien, Jason, and Jesse. And of course, this is just a broad overview. Besides being profiled due to them liking to wear black clothes, listen to heavy metal music, not going to church, general, ornery teenage behavior, the evidence showed the confession from Miss Kelly, which is the largest piece of evidence. He confessed only a few hours into the multiple hour confession. He confessed multiple times, not just at one setting. He also failed to mention his alibi, you know, that he was at a wrestling match, which was false. Miss Kelly had a job, a relationship, was a functioning member of society. Now, with Jason Baldwin, he just simply had no alibi. Damien Eccles was the main focus in the terms of guilt. He talked about what a person might do while murdering the kids, that the perpetrator might have enjoyed it, and probably felt incredibly powerful. Possible methodology and how the children would have been easy to control. He also had a history of mental health issues, potential narcissism, though there was no defined diagnosis of that. He stated that he was possessed by a demon. He described himself as being bipolar, schizophrenic, sociopathic, and suicidal, and whatever when he did apply for disability. Now this could have been him over exaggerating to try to ensure that he got the disability payments approved so that he could get away from his stepfather. But Damien did lie about things and statements such as not living in the area at the time of the murders. He said he wasn't familiar with the wooded area but he clearly was. Witnesses stated they saw him near the woods and that he had mud on him. His alibi was that he was on the phone during the time of the murders, but his lawyers never brought anyone forward to corroborate that. And supposedly Damien bragged about the killings at a softball game. Some more evidence is that there was a knife found in a lake behind Damien's residence and the handle of the knife matched a mark on the forehead of one of the children. There was also a blue wax that was on the children's bodies that matched a candle that he had in his room that belonged to his girlfriend. Damien also failed a polygraph, but those are not admissible in court. All three had exhibited some kind of ill behavior prior to the murders, and that's it. All of it was circumstantial evidence. Now, as for the evidence of their innocence, eyewitness accounts are notoriously unreliable. The actual nature of the crime, which would seem sexual in nature, but the boys were not assaulted that way, Though Jesse stated that they were, FYI, which means he was lying. Jesse also stated that Jason and Damien were cutting on the boys' bottoms, but that was also false. The confession, the section you listened to, you can hear the detectives leading Jesse in the direction they want him to go. Jesse stated rope was used to tie the boys up, but there was no rope used. It was their own shoelaces. The crime happened at night, but Jesse said it was at noon. There is some question as to whether or not the murders actually happened in the woods due to the level of trauma done to the bodies. There would have been significant blood loss, and there was just no evidence of that in the woods. There was some luminol sprayed around, and there was, you you know, a tiny bit of organic spatter, but again, this could have come from animals as well. But again, not even close to the level of blood that would have been there. Two of the boys, on top of succumbing to their injuries, were found to have drowned as well. So if the injuries occurred elsewhere, they were at least brought there and, I mean, finished, if you will. Any and all DNA evidence at the scene, later tested after their trial, did not match any of the three young men. There was a hair that was consistent with Terry Hobbs, you know, one of the stepdads, that was found tied into the bindings of the shoelaces on one of the boys, but much, much later, it was proven through DNA to not be his. They did find a hair that was later DNA matched to Terry's friend, you remember David Jacoby, at the crime scene but he explained it away by saying that he had been out there looking for the boys. Then you have of course the court proceedings themselves and speaking of Jesse's confessions that had incorrect info in them, the jury foreman brought information in from a lawyer he was communicating with This jury foreman was given the confession information and it's believed that that was done to try to sway the jury toward a guilty verdict, which is so wrong. And the three teenagers were found guilty. Life sentences for two and the death penalty for Damien. Their judge denied the standard appeals, but then he moved on to another opportunity and a new judge was assigned. As the years went on, there were documentaries made and the case caught the attention of some celebrities, namely Johnny Depp, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, Marilyn Manson and even one of the Dixie Chicks and others. They raised money to pay for DNA testing that then led to their freedom. So after 18 years in prison, the three men were set free They had to take a very unusual plea bargain where they could maintain their innocence but had to plead guilty, and then boom, free to go. So, no physical evidence was produced to link the teen boys to the murder. There was no viable motive either. Some people still truly believe these three men were guilty. Others do not. Some believe the stepfather Terry had something to do with it, but DNA ruled him out. The knife they believed matched wounds on Chris's head that was in the lake behind Damien's house, well, those marks also matched a knife that John Mark Byers possessed, you know, Chris's stepfather. Chris also sustained the highest level of horrific injuries, the ones in the groin area done Well, the boy was still alive. Some of Byers' statements did not add up. There was a theory that John Mark Byers was actually a possible suspect. He had a very colorful criminal past and it was said that he was abusive toward his wife and children. Chris Byers' mother died three years after he did, and under suspicious circumstances, but, you know, that's a whole other can of worms. And yet, John Mark Byers was never even considered a suspect. Damien himself said that Jerry, the juvenile probation officer, was well known for driving through neighborhoods and picking up teenage boys. He would supposedly tell them that they were either to perform oral sex on him or he'd take them to jail and press false charges against them. I can't attest to this being true, but I watched an interview with Damien where he explicitly describes this. And then there's the information that two other teenage boys from West Memphis, both with criminal backgrounds, took off and fled the area four days after the murders. Their names are Chris Morgan and Brian Holland. Chris Morgan knew the three victims. Chris and Brian both failed polygraph tests. Chris said he suffered from blackouts and memory lapses and that he might have killed the boys and then he quickly recanted that statement. He also took a tissue and he used it to kind of cover the camera in the interrogation room, so that he couldn't be seen while they recorded the questioning. They were never officially recorded as suspects, though, and the statement was barred from evidence. And what the hell ever happened with the guy that went into the restroom at Bojangles? Small community for him to just disappear, unless he was, you know, a truck driver or something. Employees stated he was wet and muddy, identically to the police officers who came to look in the bathroom and had literally just come from the crime scene. The man also left some sunglasses behind, by the way, which were given to the police and then promptly lost. And then also, a hair coming from a black male was found in some fabric used to wrap up one of the bodies in, but nothing? Okay... Now, I know you and I, we are jaded when it comes to our legal system. Too many times have we seen things fall through the cracks. In this case, it feels to me, anyway, that Damon was picked specifically to be the bad guy and they poured the mold of the villain around him. I think as a country, the United States has forgotten that people are innocent until proven guilty not guilty due to public opinion. We immediately jump to conclusions when anyone says anything out of pocket before giving them time to explain. Coming from someone who, when I was a teenager and was sinking into depression and anxiety, I got so sick of people making fun of me for this or that or labeling me whatever category they thought that I should fit. And I just started tuning them out with screaming guitar riffs and strained vocals that lamented about how the world was full of people who weren't capable of thinking for themselves and to just live my own life. So that's what I did. I do not care what people think of me or what I wear or what I listen to. And I certainly think that people should not be profiled based on what they wear, listen to, color of skin, any of that.